Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson, the host of Face the Nation. Did Howard Dean's presidential campaign really collapse because he produced a vociferation in which he passed air through his vocal folds with greater force than is commonly used in close distance vocalization? With less than a week to go before real voters cast their ballots in the Iowa precinct caucuses of 2016, we'd like to revisit that death yell knell, that freaky shrieky, that howler that went sour. It is one of the signature moments in one of my favorite quadrennial political events of all the ones taking place in the many rings of the presidential circus. But first, a word from our sponsor. Squarespace takes the worry and sadness out of website production. Sites look professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. It's all very intuitive and the tools are easy to use. So get the to Squarespace to help to make a website or an online store. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Our Whistle Stop today starts in the pages of the History of American Presidential Elections, 4th edition, volume 3. We are thumbing through the volume to the entry on the 2004 presidential race, and it's the kind of thing we do in the third person plural because it's just that kind of a big book. In the entry under the heading Defining Quotations of the Election of 2004, we find several from that season. Quote, I actually did vote for the $87 billion before I voted against it, John Kerry is quoted as saying. There's a partial transcript of President Bush responding at a press conference at length and in a meandering fashion to a question asked by a reporter who wanted to know what he thought his biggest mistake was since 9-11. Then there's this quotation from Howard Dean on January 19, 2004. It's labeled as an Iowa caucus concession speech. Quote, not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we are going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. Boy, does this fellow have a grasp of geography. And we're going to California and Texas and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we are going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah. After the word yeah, there are three exclamation points which in musical notation is known as fortississimo. There may even be one more C in there. An alternate rendition of this historical moment is in the opening of the indispensable podcast, Three Tickets, History and Culture of the Iowa Caucuses, by Des Moines Register reporter Jason Noble, in which during the opening theme, this signature moment is presented without comment and out of context but makes perfect sense because everyone knows what it's referring to. How can a scream undo a campaign? Well, it didn't. Still, Howard Dean's response to his third-place finish in Iowa is one of the most famous concession speeches, or concession utterances, of the television age. There are other concession speeches that were angrier, when John McCain lost to George Bush in South Carolina in 2000, boy, was he steamed. And boy, was he bitter. Listen to what he has to say. I will not take the low road to the highest office in this land. I want the presidency in the best way, not the worst way. But McCain said all this with a smiling face. 
Dean's unsettling smile and growl were simply too fascinating to look away from in cable news and the press corps. Cable news played it over and over again in the press corps that likes a good snicker doomed the insurgent candidate after Iowa. There was a bit of schadenfreude. This was a candidate who'd said he was going to go around the traditional way of doing things, who'd built a movement without needing the traditional gatekeepers like the media pundits, the big money donors and party bosses. Dean's followers snickered right back at the rules and decided they would make up their own ones. And for a long time, the Dean campaign defied the odds, raising buckets of money for a start, which was early proof that whatever they were cooking up in the back office at Dean headquarters in Burlington, Vermont, it was producing perhaps the most important thing a campaign needs, money. They were doing something right. The question of the Dean campaign was, were they doing everything right? In the end, Dean was an undisciplined candidate whose innovative and surprising campaign couldn't overcome a few of the remaining rules of politics, some of which had nothing to do with people's reaction to Dean, but they had to do with things like people's reaction to negative campaigning, the flight to security in uncertain times of terror, an incumbent in the White House engaged in a war in the country's rallying around that incumbent, and the revolt from a party apparatus, the Democratic Party in this case, that liked to keep control of things and didn't want to hand it over to a bunch of unruly hipsters. The Dean scream didn't cause his death of a candidate. It marked a death that had already happened. But if it is a punctuating burst of a thing, it makes a nice bookend to a campaign that came into the political world with a similar kind of amazing force. Joe Trippi, who ran the show for Dean, is quoted looking back as saying, for the first time in my life, maybe the first time in history, a candidate lost, but his campaign won. The election of 2004 took place in the aftermath of the attacks of 9-11. Though domestic affairs were part of the conversation, terrorism and national security and the threats America faced were a major, major part of the conversation at the center of the campaign. And as it started, though, two-thirds of Democrats opposed the war in Iraq that had been launched by George Bush. Much of that group still had lingering upset in addition to the fact that George Bush was president at all. They thought the Supreme Court had stolen the presidency from its rightful winner, Al Gore. So 2004 was a chance for loyal Democrats to win back the presidency that had been taken from them. Though Democrats were against the war, their representatives in Washington were caught between their constituents and their sense of patriotism. John Edwards, one of the candidates that year in the race for the presidency, voted in favor of granting President Bush the authority to prosecute the war in Iraq, though he would later apologize for that mistake. John Kerry did too. So did Dick Kephart, other Congressman Dick Kephart, the former majority leader of the Democrats, two other candidates in that race. John Kerry was seen as the candidate who could run against Republicans, not because he was a clear contrast to Bush, but because of his war record. That would help Democrats counter decades-old Republican charges that the party was soft on defense. But what grassroots Democrats wanted was a clean break. They didn't want people who had a marginally better posture than another Democrat in beating back an old Republican attack. They wanted somebody who spoke the old-time religion, who gave them something to be passionate about, something to stamp their feet about. And that's what Howard Dean did. He didn't mean to do that when he started his campaign. It was a message campaign. He didn't really want to win. He didn't think he'd win. He, how could he compete with all those senators and congressmen who'd been in the business for so long? He wanted to talk about health care and early childhood development. He'd been a pragmatic kind of get-the-job-done governor. He wasn't a kind of Democratic Party hero of the base. He never thought he'd get anywhere. Here's Joe Trippi. Pre-Iraq war, that's all he ever talked about speaking of health care and early childhood development. He's a smart guy, but he was under no illusions that he was going to be the nominee of the party. 
As of January 31st, 2003, the Dean campaign had a staff of seven people, $157,000 in the bank, and 432 supporters. He was referred to as the invisible man, the darkest horse. And in January 2003, he was at about 1% in Iowa. 82% of Iowa voters couldn't tell you who Howard Dean was. Senator Tom Harkin, who would later endorse Dean, you remember from the Dean scream speech that I read you, he refers to Tom Harkin, who's standing on the stage behind him. Dean had removed his coat and handed it to the senior senator of Iowa. Harkin, who would later endorse Dean, introduced him, though, in these early days at a rally as John Dean, who you may remember was the counsel to the White House under the Nixon administration. But a year later, after all of that ignominy and toiling in obscurity, Dean's staff would get close to 400 from seven, up from seven, and the campaign would raise $50 million and have 600,000 registered supporters. So what happened? Well, the war happened and Dean's opposition to it. And also, though, more importantly, Dean gave Democrats something to cheer for. On the invasion of Iraq, Dean broke with the Washington Democrats saying, what I want to know is what in the world are so many Democrats doing supporting the president's unilateral intervention in Iraq? He said that at the California State Convention in March of 2003. And the feeling that he was tapping into was also being fomented by people like George Soros, who spent $15 million and put it into moveon.org. Soros was quoted as saying, when I hear President Bush say you're either with us or against us, it reminds me of the Germans. My experiences under Nazi and Soviet rule have sensitized me. So, you know, there were people comparing the sitting president to some of the great fascists. That was a kind of energy that Dean was tapping into. They wanted to hear that kind of blunt talk. Dean put pressure on Kerry and Edwards, who were in the Senate, who'd supported the Iraq war, but were still taking votes on funding the war. Dick Kephart also put under pressure. Dean quoted the late Minnesota Senator Paul Wellstone, who had recently died in a plane crash and, and said that he represented the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. But what that really meant is that it wasn't just the right policy positions. Dean made Democrats feel it. He tapped into their emotion by creating a campaign experience through the use of the internet and the decentralization that appealed to exactly what they had been missing. It was a precursor to what Barack Obama would perfect. In writing, they talk about showing and, and not telling. You can tell somebody about heartache or you can write love story and make them dapple the pages with their tears. So that's what Dean did. He made them feel it by getting them involved. There's a tradition of this in the Democratic Party, uh, and it's always been the outsider insurgent's route to success. Here's how Gary Hart wrote about it in 1972. You'll remember we talked about this during the McGovern campaign, the Thomas Eagleton affair, but also McGovern coming up and beating Muskie in 72 uh, with this kind of insurgent campaign. Here's what Hart wrote. If people could be made to feel there was still hope through working in the system, they might draw encouragement and inspiration. He's not talking about Dean there, but that's exactly what Dean tapped into. And there are some striking parallels between Dean and McGovern in terms of the fact that both men were playing on this idea that the status quo had broken, that the two parties were too similar, and that success could only come through participation. And then, of course, obviously, Dean and McGovern had war going on at the same time, too. Jerry Brown, the uh, once and future Democratic governor of California, also tried a similar thing in the race in 1992, promoting an 800 number. Uh, a precursor to what Dean would do with his websites and meetups and uh, and email campaigns. And here's Jerry Brown talking about the same thing Hart talked about, same thing that Dean would go talk about. It is my conviction and is the basis of my candidacy that by limiting contributions to what the average person can actually give, 
that we're building a movement, a cause to take back power and give a shift in direction so that our nation can live up uh, to its premise that all of us are created equal and we have an inalienable right to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. There's not so much about a list, but it's about a commitment and opening up this very stagnant political system to realize the dreams and the potential of why this country was created in the first place. There's the message that the system, through participation and draining big money from it, would be the route to achieving the American dream. By the time the campaign of 2004 rolled around, the influence of big money, even in the Democratic Party, was profound. The side with the most money bought the most ads, the most pollsters. But what that ended up doing is since both parties were going after people with the money, the people with the money tended to have similar views on things like trade and national defense. Candidates started to sound pretty much the same as far as liberal Democrats were concerned because they were all tied to the big money required to run the campaigns and it created a circular system, a situation in which the pre-game primary, the invisible primary of fundraising and going after those small number of big donors would determine who the ultimate nominee would be. People were shut out. Here's Jimmy Carter. An average person like I was, just a peanut farmer back in 1976, would be absolutely impossible. There's a criterion for success in American politics now, and that is extreme wealth or access to major wealth. Remember, Jimmy Carter in 1976 was the big surprise in Iowa coming out of nowhere. Dean would successfully break that fundraising system in a way Jerry Brown could only dream of. Dean knew he couldn't compete with the sitting senators and longtime heavyweights like Dick Kephart. His campaign's Fengali Joe Trippi had an idea, though. Trippi had been working with tech startups and thought, what if we could find a way to combine the build-it-yourself entrepreneurial spirit of the tech world with the campaign world? So he said on his first day, Trippi says, he said, we need to put a link to this website, meetup.com, on our campaign website. Okay, so they did. And people started meeting up. And they kept doing it. Regular folks just took it upon themselves to gather and talk politics at Dean meetups. The numbers started to grow. More people were meeting all over the country. And as they took it upon themselves to meet up, the campaign started hiring a technical staff that could harness their energy. Here's Trippy. It was as if the world were shifting right before our eyes, the ground rumbling beneath our feet. As techies, we'd been hearing for decades that the internet would radically transform American life. Well, the future is happening right now to us. The growth led to a strategy. When voters looked to Howard Dean, they thought internet, meetup, empowerment, taking the party back from the system. When you listen to Trippy talk about the campaign, it sounds different than usual retrospectives. They focus around the candidate. Trippy tells the story about a movement. Howard Dean didn't create the movement, Trippy writes. In many ways, the movement created the Dean for America campaign. It wasn't just that they were meeting. They were giving, and in small amounts, but the network was kind of growing on its own. A supporter would email an idea to another supporter and the campaign would reap the rewards. So when the list of Meetup Dean supporters reached about 22,000 people, one of them emailed another suggesting that when they donated, they should add a penny so the campaign would know the donation was coming from Meetup. Okay, so this is a situation in which the people in Meetup have to send a message to the campaign because the campaign hasn't called a bunch of people and said, hey, meet at Sheboygan and 3rd at the high school there. We're going to have a rally. These were people who were doing this organically and then said, hey, let's think of a way to let the campaign know we're doing this. So they said, we'll add a penny to our donations, and they'll know that the donation was sent from people who were at Meetup. Soon, $400,000 came in, in small donations, each with a penny attached. A woman famously sold her bike for 75 bucks and donated the money to the Dean campaign. Suddenly, donations started coming in with notes that said, I sold my bike for democracy. 
The campaign at one point sent out to when the number of supporters got to 30,000, it sent out an, an email to the email list, a retro sort of facsimile of a having a wonderful time uh, a greeting card with a mock 23 cent stamp. The postcard uh, said, dear friend, uh, we're close to our goal, but we need your help. We're only $83,000 short of our target for the first quarter of the FEC deadline. The response, they got $400,000 over the internet in just five days. That's from Walter Shapiro's book, One Car Caravan. In the end, 800,000 people from half of the counties in the United States gave Dean an average of $77 each. $50 million was the total raised, a record-breaking $15 million in one quarter alone. And again, most of it was in those small donations that had just appeared through this brush fire created through meetups and through internet connections. And one quarter of these contributions were from people under 30 years old. And as the campaign continued, many of those young people started offering to volunteer. In the very early days of the campaign, Joe Trippi sat a few of the strategists down and outlined a strategy. The number one strategic necessity was that Dean needed to come out of Iowa in either first or second place. Because he had uh, been a governor in a neighboring state to New Hampshire, that would carry him on to do well in New Hampshire, and then he'd use that momentum to do well in South Carolina and in Super Tuesday, places Dean didn't have a natural constituency. In South Carolina, he really needed momentum because John Edwards, who'd been born there and it was from the neighboring North Carolina, had a real inroad into South Carolina. So Dean needed the momentum coming out of Iowa. It was crucial to his campaign that he do well. If he didn't come in first or second in Iowa, he was done. That was Trippy's original view of Iowa. Dean, as a candidate, learned to speak to the energy he'd created. The biggest lie people like me tell people like you, Dean would tell his audiences, from stages like this at election time, is that if you vote for me, I'm going to solve all your problems. The truth is the power to change the country rests in your hands, not mine. Dean was seeking to change the form and function of politics. He's going to rise above the system and transform it. And there was this feeling that the rules of politics as had been practiced had been repealed. So when Dean went and did one of the things you're supposed to do as a candidate to continue your rise, which was to go on Meet the Press and face Tim Russert, he had a disastrous performance. One newspaper declared it was perhaps the worst performance by a presidential candidate in the history of television, full of vagueness, meandering, no clarity, a little bit of irritation snippiness. But then a funny thing happened. Within minutes of the interview, the Dean blog started filling up with messages of support from the Deaniacs. Our supporters weren't running for cover, writes Trippy. They were running to help. Here's how Dean talked about this platform he had underneath him, not just the fundraising ability, but also this support, this connection he had with his supporters. The internet community is wondering what its place in the world of politics is. Along comes this campaign to take back the country for ordinary human beings, and the best way you can do that is through the net. We listen. We pay attention. If I give a speech and the blog people don't like it, next time I change the speech. It's funny. With history, you can be reminded of tribes and parts of the American experience that were once so central but are now forgotten. The blog people. Remember them? They lived under the bridges and survived on the crumbled remnants of old Johnny Mathis albums. They were harmless, but many a child went to bed in fear of the blog people. It was an interesting theory. Let the people build the organization. That gave Dean's campaign credibility from the purest form of organic growth. It was, it was Jeffersonian. It was Jacksonian democracy. It wasn't just a candidate supported by the people. Remember, 
1840 campaign when men, white men at the time, really flushed into the process, changed it from being white elites uh, with property and made it something that all white men participated in. We obviously had other influxes in the 60s and African Americans joining the political process in earnest. And then after the 19th Amendment, women joining the process. Here was, here was Dean saying, you wouldn't just rally behind a candidate. You could, be, you could be responsible for literally building the campaign. Dean started to rise in the summer of 2003 in Iowa. His closest competitor was Richard Gephardt. Amazing was that in 88, Dean, then a lieutenant governor in Vermont, had gone to Iowa to campaign for Gephardt, not supporting Michael Dukakis, who had been in the neighboring state of Massachusetts. Uh, Gephardt went on to win in 88 in Iowa, and he was looking like he was going to be the winner again in 2004. He was the front runner. The fracas between Gephardt and Dean started in the fall of 2003. Gephardt attacked Dean on uh, tinkering with Medicare and Social Security, and then Dean fired back in November with a negative ad showing Gephardt in the White House Rose Garden with the president, announcing details of the congressional resolution authorizing Bush to go to war against Iraq. Of course, it was called a negative ad, but all it did was just show Gephardt do what he did, which was support Bush. This back and forth would then go on all the way right up until Election Day in January of 2004. Here's the problem. It pulled Dean into an old-fashioned fight, a back and forth of negative this isn't that's making him look just like a regular old politician. And by the way, hurting him because the conversation was now about not his empowerment, not his changing of the process, but whether he did or didn't mess with or have ideas about messing with Medicare and Social Security. And also, it made him, instead of inspiring and uplifting and take the system back, he was a negative campaigner just like the rest of them. In the fall and headed into the end of the year, more of this cut and thrust, this close combat started to take place. In the fall, Dean also started to gaff a lot. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, he said, I still want to be the candidate for guys with Confederate flags in their pickup trucks. We can't beat George Bush unless we appeal to a broad cross-section of Democrats. Well, Democrats jumped on him. His opponents jumped on him both in the press and then in a subsequent debate. Imagine now, by the way, when you think of how far the party has gone, I mean, a Republican can't even now talk about a voter who has a Confederate flag in their pickup truck. The chairman of the Republican Party, Reince Priebus, was so anxious to associate his party with the anti-Confederate flag feeling that he is seen behind Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, when she announces the flags coming down. Who's behind her? A series of South Carolina officials, but also Ryan Sprevis, the chairman of the Republican Party, who, as far as I know, doesn't have any role in South Carolina. But he wanted to be in the picture there so that he um, could be associated with this change uh, from an era where it was celebrating the Confederate flag. That's according to uh, advisors to Nikki Haley who describe his anxiousness and desire to be in that photograph. There's one other just little sidelight about how far things have come and how much things have changed. In Walter Shapiro's book, One Car Caravan, about the run-up to the 2004 campaign, here's Dean talking about gun control. My position on guns for the presidential race is that states can do whatever they want. And if California wants to have gun control, let them have as much gun control as they want. Just don't pass it nationally. We should close the gun show loophole. We should have that in the Brady Bill and then just let the states do what they want and get it off the Democratic agenda. 
So that's obviously not the position of the Democratic Party today. Although Dean, like Sanders today, was running as somebody who had familiarity with a culture of hunters, having been in Vermont. Joe Trippi puts the decline of the campaign in Iowa to December 9th, the day that Dean was endorsed by Al Gore. Huge news. Coup for the campaign. Uh, especially for a candidate, by the way, who'd been at 1% in the polls at the beginning of that year. But what Trippi says it did is it put blood in the water. Dean looked, he looked like not only he was going to win Iowa, he was at the head of the polls at that time. Gephardt still close, Kerry and Edwards in third and fourth. So Dean gets this big endorsement. He was also endorsed, by the way, by Bill Bradley, who'd been Gore's uh, challenger in 2000. So he looked like he was moving to be a lock and that basically caused his challengers to basically dump the oppo file on him, just absolutely throw everything they could at him. So there were advertisements in which the face of Osama bin Laden was put on the screen and then the narrator talked about Dean. Pushbowls were conducted where people were called at home and asked what sounded like poll questions, but which conveyed dark, shady information about Dean and were not intended to actually collect any data at all. There's a theory in politics that the closer the election gets, the more pragmatic voters get. They start to imagine the person in the Oval Office. Can they handle it? Do they have the experience? Have they been tested? The voters also start to think more about electability. This is the theory that uh, Hillary Clinton tried to play on in 2008 when she said it's time to pick a president. She was saying basically enough of this dalliance with Barack Obama. It's time to concentrate on the skills and qualities and attributes used in the actual job. Of course, it didn't work. It's a version, by the way, of course, of the same thing she's trying to say now about Bernie Sanders. So at this point, Democrats are hitting Dean on everything. But the main one is, he does he have the temperament to be president? Can he handle it in difficult times? Trippi outlines the problem in slightly more conspiratorial tones in an early campaign essay before or a campaign memo before Dean really started to rocket up in the polls. Trippy wrote to his boss, you are by definition the classic outsider, but think about the fear and anger you have engendered from the DLC, that's the Democratic Leadership Council, a centrist think tank, which was allied with Bill Clinton and was considered a part of the Democratic Party's movement to the center that had been a part of its success in the two Clinton years. So there's a fight in the Democratic Party between its centrist wing and its liberal wing. Back to Trippy. The other candidates and many of the Washington establishment they are not afraid you are George McGovern or Jerry Brown, both of whom lost. No, what they are afraid of is that you are Jimmy Carter. Well, that's Trippy's theory. And there is a big conspiratorial view that, and it's not wrong, but it is in parallel. It can, Democrats could think both things. The one theory is, here comes this guy, Dean. He's going to take away our power, give it to the people, be successful, and we'll be out of a job. The other is, he is McGovern. He is Goldwater. He's going to basically rally the grassroots and that'll win him the nomination and then we'll get pummeled in the general election, particularly a general election that's very likely to center around national security themes and he's a governor from Vermont and he doesn't have any experience there. Dean then played into that a little bit when he said late in the campaign that killing Saddam Hussein hadn't made America safer. He might have been right. It's certainly what Donald Trump says today and there are a number of Republicans who now say a version of that. But it was the kind of thing that one couldn't get away with in or that caused Democrats nervousness in late 2003, especially when you weren't a foreign policy heavyweight. Senator Evan Bayh, a Democrat, put the threat from Dean this way. 
It is our belief that the Democratic Party has an important choice to make. Do we want to vent or do we want to govern? The administration is being run by the far right. The Democratic Party is in danger of being taken over by the far left. Now, <laughs> there you go. I mean, that's um, so fun because, of course, it sounds like what's happening in the Democratic primary race today. What is fearsome or fearful to uh, the Dean opponents is the same thing that scares the people who oppose Bernie Sanders, which is Dean was able to tap into something. Sanders is able to tap into something. And that kind of something, which Barack Obama successfully converted into the nomination and the presidency, is really hard to control. In Iowa, Democrats started, though, to become pragmatists. They went with the man strongest in the area where Republicans have always prevailed, national security. As Dean is fighting it out with Gephardt, and voters are in this pick-a-president mode, Kerry, with his decorated Vietnam service, as well as his kind of presidential demeanor, started to cause him to rise in the polls. A week out from the vote, as a part of an oppo dump from the Wesley Clark campaign, Clark had been putting all his chips on New Hampshire, not really participating in Iowa, but the oppo dump nevertheless would tear Dean down, hopefully hurt him enough in Iowa that he wouldn't be a threat in New Hampshire. The video that came out was a time when he was governor and it was on a Canadian political talk show that used to be on all the time. And it was, it was, uh, he was asked, the interviewer asked Dean what he thought of the Iowa caucus system. And Dean said essentially that it was classist and a bad way to select a president. Uh, guess what you're not supposed to do when you're campaigning in Iowa is ever challenge the greatness of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and you're definitely not supposed to do that a week before the event. Local news stations did big, long stories on the video and what Dean thought and, and whether Iowa was significant or not. And I am a huge fan of the Iowa caucuses, especially in a time with uh, no, where money is so much a part of politics. It is a place where candidates have to go and create themselves in small meetings in front of people, come up with ideas. They form their policies and thoughts based on answers to questions from real voters. It is not perfect. Iowa is obviously not a representative national state. There are many imperfections, but it is still a great thing in a process that after Iowa and New Hampshire goes on to being just basically one big television commercial. Dean's numbers started to plummet after this video was released, though it's hard to tell whether it was the video or the move to carry based on national security or the fallout from the back and forth with Gephardt. But to respond and basically take away from this video, Dean put up an Iraq war ad hitting all of his Democratic rivals for supporting the war. In response, Gephardt put up an ad saying that Dean would cut Social Security and Medicare. He just went after Dean. The conventional wisdom is in a multi-candidate race, when you hit just your opponent, what's likely to happen is you're likely to tear down your opponent and then also hurt yourself because there are a lot of people who don't like that you're going negative. It's the old murder-suicide theory of campaigning. And when people talk about murder-suicide these days, they talk about Dean and Gephardt because that's just what happened. Dean and Gephardt went after each other in that final week and both men went down. Of course, they didn't really know this at the time. Joe Trippi says he did know it. Joe Trippi said he realized they were doomed. But the polls still showed Dean kind of hanging in there, losing altitude. But the big question was how much altitude would he lose? And so as a last-ditch 
push. The, the Dean campaign went right to the center heart of their campaign, which was those volunteers. 3,500 committed volunteers uh, showed up in Iowa to knock on 200,000 doors to spread the Dean message. They wore orange stocking caps and called themselves the perfect storm, which was a, based on a posting that Joe Trippi had made on their blog back in May. It was one last populist push by this campaign that had been defined by it. They came, 180 came from Texas, 50 from Pennsylvania, 25 volunteers came from California, some even came from Japan. And they made that one last symbolic push for the people's campaign that Dean had run. And remember going into the vote, although it looked like Dean was losing altitude, nobody had believed in the beginning that this governor from Vermont who was at 1% in the polls would ever go anywhere anyway. And the people's campaign that had been created by all these meetup meetings, that had been built on the internet, that had broken these fundraising records through word of mouth and small donations, uh, might just very well be able to pull it out here in the end. And these ads being run by Gephardt and Kerry and the oppo dump by Clark, all that old-fashioned traditional politics stuff, even the idea that the president needed to have national security experience, that might be old conventional wisdom. That might be stuff that could sur- that would be cast aside by the Dean campaign. It was totally possible in a campaign that had seen such a meteoric rise after so much doubt. It didn't happen. On election night, the damage the Dean insiders had worried about had in fact hurt him. He came in third, a massive plummet from a month earlier where people were talking about him as the eventual party nominee. John Kerry won 37.6% of the vote. John Edwards won 31% of the vote. And Howard Dean came in at just 18% of the vote. On that January 19th evening before Dean came out on stage, his communications director, Tricia Enright, worked the press at the back of the room and said, he's going to be fiery, she told reporters. So they were ready for it. She said Dean would walk on stage, take off his jacket, hand it to Senator Tom Harkin and roll up his sleeves. She said Dean was fired up. And indeed he was. Let's listen to the actual Dean concession speech. You know something? If you had told us one year ago that we were going to come in third in Iowa, We would have given anything for that. And you know something? You know something? Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Dean was trying to rally a room of 3,500 people. They were down in the mouth. He was playing to the room and the people who had sold their bikes and donated and trekked across the country to wear orange hats and knock on the doors of people they didn't know. What he was not playing to was the television cameras. The television crews recording the event plug into an audio feed that comes right out of the microphone. And the cameras focus the tight shot on the candidate himself, not the rest of the room and the reactions that people are having. So Dean sounded primal and unhinged, and also because he'd taken such a beating after all the hype, he sounded like another inauthentic politician. He was trying to sell the claim that he was raring to go, even though he just had his pants handed to him. He seemed out of sync with the moment. To the room, though, of course, it was a tonic. It was like that Russert moment where all the people in the East Coast and the pundits thought it looked terrible. To the room, they were fired up. They were waving flags. They were shouting out states as he went through them. They loved his defiant tone that he was a fighter. 
He wanted to fight. He'd been told he couldn't do it all along and look at this organization he'd been able to build. This was the spirit that had gotten them into the process in the first place. The problem is the cable networks played the scream over and over again, 663 times over four days by one estimate. Another had it the number close to 900. The repetition was devastating. It made Dean look bonkers, and it just labeled him as a loser. He'd harnessed the internet to ride a movement that would change politics, but suffered from another change in the media landscape, which was when there were three television networks, it might have been shown once and that was it. But with cable news, it became wallpaper. And the late night comedians. Oh, did they have fun with him. Did you see Dean's speech last night? Asked Jay Leno. Oh my God, now I hear the cows in Iowa are afraid of getting mad Dean disease. It's always a bad sign when at the end of your speech, your aide is shooting you with a tranquilizer gun. David Letterman said, here's what happened. The people of Iowa realized they don't want a president with the personality of a hockey dad. It all made Dean, who is still pretty disciplined and a straight-laced New Yorker, look more than a little kooky. And there had been these stories about how he was uh, kind of a hothead. And so this played into that as well. But Jon Stewart also, I should add, was also having a little fun at Dean's expense. Dean will be driving to all those states... Apparently in Truckosaurus. <laughs> and he will do it on Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah! yeah! We're going to take back the country. So did this do him in? Well, there is no journalistic excuse for showing the piece 663 times or however many it was. That is largely for entertainment value. And candidates have come back after losses in Iowa. Reagan did in 80, Bush in 88, uh, Romney in uh, 2012, Michael Dukakis came in third in 1988. Dean could have revived himself uh, if he hadn't been the laughing stock, perhaps. But... Dean's campaign was dying for other reasons that had nothing to do with the scream. The scream was more like a supernova, the, the final act of a dying star. The former director of uh, IT for Dean's presidential campaign, Dave Kochbeck, answers a question on Quora, actually, in which somebody said, is this really what cost him the campaign? This is very fitting for a campaign that was uh, so internet focused. And basically, uh, Kochbeck says, in a very basic way, we lost that primary a few months before the scream ever happened. The question about Dean that's interesting is, was the thing that he created, the which was a part of his bluntness, his authenticity, his uh, kind of I don't give a damn process, would that have ever existed? That was some of what hurt him in the end, the kind of uh, lack of discipline, the inattention to the normal rules of politics in that last cut and thrust over the last several of months, if he'd been more disciplined, let's call it just mere discipline, if if they'd been able to handle those last few months, would he have been able to survive in Iowa? This has nothing to do with the scream. The thing of it is, though, is that all of the craziness and organic nature of the Dean campaign that made it harder in those final months is what gave it its energy in the first place. Today, Dean looks at his scream this way, or looks at his Iowa finish this way and the screens roll in it. He says, I came in third. That had already happened. His argument basically being that coming in third was what killed him, going back to that trippy memo that said he had to come in first or second. There's also a theory that although there were all of those orange-hatted volunteers that had come from across the country, that 
it was an organization that pounded on the doors but really wasn't as effective as those kinds of organizations can be, that they had uh, like an internet startup that gets too much money and doesn't have the infrastructure to really channel that money into its productive use, that the dean door knockers weren't all that effective, that there was a lot of manpower but that a lot of it dribbled out under the streets of Iowa and wasn't really being used to effectively convert it into caucus attendees for Dean. Whatever happened to those ideas about healthcare and early childhood development? The second topic isn't much discussed, but since the Dean campaign, Barack Obama was elected and his Affordable Care Act did achieve a big chunk of Dean's dream to increase coverage. And Obama couldn't have done it without perfecting the strategy in Iowa that Howard Dean and Joe Trippi and all of those attendees at those meetups helped launch. We'd love to hear what you think of WhistleStop. Send us an email at whistlestopatslate.com. And then also leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word and makes us feel warm inside. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code WHISTLESTOP and get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Our producer here at WhistleStop is Tony Field. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. He makes it all happen. WhistleStop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our WhistleStop Cracker Jack researcher, as always, is Brian Rosenwald, who never screams but only offers calm, soothing tones produced from hard work and dedication. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. I'm John Dickerson. Thank you.